Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the topic of dream time. My guest is Gary Lockman, formerly a songwriter and bass guitarist for the rock band Blondie. He is one of the world's foremost historians of esoteric culture. He's been interviewed 11 times previously on the New Thinking Aloud channel on topics including Rudolf Steiner, Madame Blavatsky, Emanuel Swedenborg, P.D. Uspensky, Colin Wilson, Alistair Crowley, Hermeticism, Carl Jung, Chaos Magic, and Russian Mysticism. His newest book, about which we'll be discussing today, is Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. Gary is based in London, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Gary. What a pleasure to be with you again after a pause of about a year. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm very happy to be back on the show, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. You took advantage of the pandemic to write yet another book about uh, your own personal experiences with precognitive dreaming, which I know is, is a long-standing interest of yours, even, I think, going back to your days as a musician. Uh, yes, this is uh, a very personal new new uh, new book uh, for me, and it is uh, fundamentally about uh, these strange future dreams that I started recording in um, 1980. But even before then, um, as you mentioned, in my my oh, well, that was in my musician days. But in the beginning, of my musician days, when I was playing in Blondie, um, I wrote a song called "The Moby's Touched by Your Presence, Dear," which, which was about sort of mutual dreams, shared dreaming I was having with my girlfriend at the time and, uh, you know, telepathic sort of experiences. And um, th this this book came, uh, starts, or say the beginning of the book, starts kind of at like the next kind of step in that when um, I, I, I started be, uh, basically recording my dreams all the time and, and discovering uh, that actually bits and pieces of the future started turning up in them. One of the things you point out is that you're in effect repeating an experiment that was very famous going back to the 1920s. Oh uh, yes, uh, how this all happened was um, well, I, I, I say in the book, and as I've said in other books and in other interviews, I got interested in all this stuff that I write about now or have been writing about for quite some time um, when I was living in New York, um, playing in the then on. Absolutely unknown Blondie uh, uh, in the, the mid 1970s, and uh, I was living on the Bowery uh, with Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, singer and guitarist. And I got into all the stuff I'm writing about now. Then um, there was a milieu where people were interested in Alistair Crowley and magic and all that, and it was also a kind of uh, kind of renaissance in terms of publishing because there was lots and lots of out of print or public domain books that were coming out and you know so they were available in cheap editions and so I, I just totally plunged into it 
And in the midst of all that, one of the things that happened was uh, I was on tour, sort of the first Blondie tour um, of of the States. Uh, My girlfriend and I at the time, we discovered that we sort of sharing similar elements and dreams. And then when we wanted to call each other, we wound up doing it. And it was like it wasn't we didn't have mobile phones back then. So it was like you had to go out of your way, you know, to go to the phone box to make a call or at the hotel and all this kind of thing. So when I came back from that tour, I wrote a song, uh, at least purchased by your presence, dear, and then it became a big hit here back back in the day, a long time ago. And then subsequent to that, I kept reading and reading and reading. One of the books I read was a book called An Experiment with Time that came out, as you say, in the in the nineteen twenties. And it was by a fellow named J.W. Dunn, who was not an occultist, wasn't a mystic, not a psychologist. He was an aeronautic um, engineer, but he discovered just by chance that he dreamed the future. He recorded his dreams. This is how he tells it in this book, is that he he had a dream in which he was arguing with somebody about what time it was. And he said it was 4.30. And the fellow in the dream said, no, it wasn't. And he said, yes, it is, and I'll prove it. And he went into his pocket and pulled out his pocket watch, and the pocket watch said it was 4.30. And then he woke up. Uh, And then he wondered, oh, gee, I had this strange dream. I wonder... Blah, blah, blah. So he went over and he looked for his watch and he picked his watch up. You know, this is back in <laughs> his old pocket watch. This is like 1890s or something like that. And this is like he's writing about it many years after it happened. Um, and um, it, 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 his watch in that time, waking life, said 430. He thought that it had stopped earlier in the day and he had forgot to wind it. So um, uh, he, he wound it then thinking, well, when I get up, I'll have to fix it to the right time, went back to sleep. When he woke up, picked up his watch, lo and behold, it was at the right time. So in his dream, he told somebody it was 4.30. He woke up, it was 4.30. His watch had stopped at 4.30 because when he wound it, it was the right time when he woke up. So Dunn thought, oh, that's odd. And then he had other dreams. He dreamt of seeing um, soldiers from the Boer War. This is, again, back in that time, uh, marching up from the, you know, the South Africa up, up towards Cairo, uh, up towards the north. And he encountered them and he said something like, why would you guys do something like this? And they explained, well, well this is what we're doing. We're coming from the you know, south up to the north. And then the next day he read in the newspaper about, you know, from the Cape to Cairo, this famous uh, um, you know, expedition, which is exactly what the soldiers in his dream were telling him were doing. And then the most famous or the most striking dream that Dunn had was um, he, he dreamt that he was on an island and, you know, fissures were opening up and steam was coming out. He realized there was going to be a, a volcanic eruption and he was trying to get the French officials who were running the island, you know, to pay attention to him because they had to get everybody off the island and so on and so on. And then he later realized that he had dreamt what he had read in the newspaper about uh, the island of Martinique that had, you know, exploded in the famous, um, you know, Krakatoa-like, as we would say today, uh, volcanic explosion. And the interesting thing that Dunn came to see was that he wasn't like hovering over the future, you know, like Nostradamus or Blackwell predicts or something like that. It was his specific future, what he would see in the newspaper. And, and th- that was the odd thing for him. And then he came to understand that first he thought this was some strange thing that happened to him. He thought he was had some weird anomaly. But then by chance, he discovered that others uh, had the same phenomena happening. And he realized that this was something that's actually common 
to our experience. And then he developed a strange philosophy about it called serialism that we can take or leave. But that was my kind of starting point. He said, like, you know, this happens to everybody, really. And don't take my word for it. Record your dreams. And I did. And lo and behold, he was right. As I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, he also tried to match dreams with past events, which many people think dreams are a way we digest the past. And, and he found that the dreams were just as good at predicting future events as they were at describing past events. It was about equal. Well, yeah, see, he developed this whole, as I said, this notion called serialism um, and these different sort of times. There's time one, time two, time three. Unfortunately, it winds up into an, a, an unending kind of, you know, infinite regress. And he has to actually call in some kind of ultimate observer and that kind of thing, which is not particularly satisfying. But we don't have to really take, you know, Dunn's serialism um, uh, uh, you know, swallow it whole. We can just sort of, you know, follow his example and write down our dreams. But the thing about the past and future is that time one is us every day, nose to the present, dealing with everything. And then there's a very palpable present. There's the past that does, you know, earlier today, we weren't having this conversation, right? Later on this evening, it'll be over and we won't be having it. Okay, that's, that's our everyday kind of experience. But in this time two, that done uh, posits in the dream world, our consciousness, which is no longer anchored to the brain, the brain is fixed to the present moment. And he doesn't mention Bergson, but this is something that the philosopher Arnie Bergson talked about too. And in a similar way, um, when in the dream state in time two, we hover over some kind of time, which is both the past and the future at the same time. And so that's many ways our dreams have a mixture of, of the bo both, you know, both sort of thing. And if you only look at dreams, let's say from a cause and effect, you know, point of view, ah, that happened yesterday. And oh, and so I had that dream about it. You, you won't notice the kind of, well, this hasn't happened yet, <laughs> but I dreamt about it which you only notice if you bother to write your dreams down and, and do it over time and pay attention to what happens in your daily life. And that's what you discovered looking at your own dream journal, that there were many precognitive dreams that if you hadn't reviewed the dream journal, you wouldn't have been aware of. Well, that was exactly it. I mean, that, that, that's the central thing. I mean, it, it's, it, it sounds rather banal and, and anticlimactic, but the main thing is just to bother to write your dreams down um, and pay attention to them. Don't worry about interpreting that. I mean, you can do that if you want, you know, and many people write their dreams down, but it's not about interpreting your dreams. I mean, you can do that. And Dunn doesn't do that. He's, he doesn't, he's not, he gives no evidence. I, I think he may mention Freud here or there, but he doesn't have, you know, he's not really into dream interpretation or Jung or anything like that. For him, it's more about time. He came up with the whole philosophy of time and all that, and ultimately a philosophy that you know we we are fundamentally immortal and 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 so on and and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so the dreams were a vehicle for him to that kind of time philosophy. Um, but um, I mean, I, I found pretty much as soon as I started writing them down that he was right. It was it, it, it was remarkable. And I say in the book, the very first one that I, I remember is that this is back 1980. I was living in New York and I was a musician then. And I dreamt that I was playing a red guitar. I didn't have one. I didn't know anyone who had one. Uh, met up with a friend, walked around, whatever. And by chance, we wound up at a friend of a friend of a friend's <laughs> you know, flat. 
And the guy said, hey, check this out. And he handed me a red guitar. Um, I don't remember what the heck it was. It's probably a Fender of some kind. And then at some point I realized, oh, wow, this is the dream. And, and you know, and then the next one was even better. It was a, 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 a woman that I you know, would have wanted to be quite intimate with and uh, uh, hadn't hadn't yet. And I dreamt that it happened and um i as i say in the book i you know chalked that one up to freudian wish fulfillment but then again through a chance encounter i wound up in the intimate situation and that i had dreamt of uh with the woman in question and again it was like well wow okay i how did i know this in advance and that just started it just kept going and 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 you know uh, I, again i'm in a way i feel embarrassed because I, I don't i don't necessarily want to draw attention to myself i dream the future but it it just was the case and there's just so many of them you know um um in, in uh, that i i mean i write about quite a few of them in the book but there's uh, many 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 more in the journals that i didn't get to well, it's interesting that J.W. Dunn had a significant impact in his own day. As you point out, he was uh, friends with H.G. Wells, the author of The Time Machine. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and uh, Wells and also J.B. Priestley, who's not as well known, but he was uh, Priestley was a very famous um, writer here in, in, in the 20th century. And uh, both Wells and Priestley, sort of use Dunn's ideas um, in, in their books. I mean, not, not in the time machine, which is the, the, you know, the time travel uh, book that's, well, most people know, and Wells is, you know, one of his most famous works. Um, and they, they, there is like a, it's kind of real physical kind of going into time and the machine moves into time as the fourth dimension in some kind of way. Um, but there's a later book of Wells's that was made into a film in the thirties called The Shape of Things to Come. And it's one of his future histories, which is sort of like the time, it's the time machine is a future history, too. I mean, uh, you know, basically, it's like Wells's vision of what's going to happen. But in the shape of things to come, the main character, insofar as there is one in the book, uh, is Phil called Philip Raven. But he's someone who come, um, we, we find his diary and he's read Dunn's book. And he's experimented with it. And uh, whereas Dunn is, you know, he's 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 dreaming about what he's going to read in the newspaper tomorrow or the next day or the day after. Philip Raven is dreaming about what is going to happen, you know, centuries forward. And it, it's the kind of future history that people like Olaf Stapleton and other um, kind of science fiction fiction writers picked up on. But no, I mean, Wells knew Dunn. And then I said with Priestley, Priestley's um, wrote th what, these, these time plays um, he's probably better known in the UK than than, than in America, but he um, a, a play called Time in the Conways and I Have Been Here Before. Priestley was always very uh, was also very influenced by P.D. Uspensky's ideas about six dimensional time and and eternal recurrence. So I mean, these ideas filtered into the popular culture and all that. I mean, and today, I mean, if you go on Netflix or whatever streaming thing it is, the most popular thing has to be like time travel. There's so many time travel shows. What's intriguing to me is we seem as modern people, so-called modern people, wow, we're discovering precognition, we're discovering the power of dreams, but as, as you point out, and virtually every dream researcher knows that uh, this was taken for granted in ancient times. Nothing as new as the old. I mean, you know, um, I mean, our interest in dreams goes back um, very, very far. You know, uh, one of the interesting things I 
learned, although I've been reading about dreams, you know, for a long time, you know, uh, already, but having to do sort of research for the, you know, the book and focus on it, relearned, remembered is that, you know, it, uh, you know, one of the earliest dreams, uh, sort of collection of dreams, uh, you know, the Babylonian king Ashurbanipal goes back, you know, uh, ages and ages and ages. And among the dreams that were rediscovered, discovered among these libraries was also Gilgamesh, you know, the, the earliest work of what we would call sort of literature uh, in, in, in a very broad sense. And so, and there's a real relation between the two, literacy and dreaming come together in the sense that dreams, for the most part, are kind of these stories, you know, they have, they have characters, they have a narrative, there's a, you know, opening, there's a denouement and things of that sort. Um, and yeah, I mean, our interest in them is like, you know, one of these things we've been fascinated with them ever since we can even think about them. And it's only fairly recently, like so many things, and, and you, you, you know this, Jeffrey, and, and your, your listeners do as well, only fairly recently that the modern view is that, oh, this is just, you know, it's kind of nothing, you know, just floats him in jets him of, of, of the brain, like getting rid of stuff, or there's a German, you know, uh, uh, phrase, Träumen sind Schaumen, like uh, dreams are foam. Dreams are just kind of like bubbles of, of given off by the brain. And, and, and anyone who pays attention to their dreams, you know, any any length of time and often you know very soon into doing so you realize there's an intelligence at work there so it's not just kind of psychic rubbish we get rid of now i want to go back to a point you made about ashurbanipal uh the sumerian king if i understand it when when they uncovered the records in his palace they discovered that in in addition to the legend of gilgamesh uh and correct me if i'm wrong he had basically saved thousands of years of records of the dreams, and I assume dreams of previous kings. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the things. There's um, a wonderful book by a Jungian um, uh, psychologist, Anthony Stevens, um, called Primal Myth, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, where he goes into the, his, the history of dreams and history of dreaming, and he says that that's one of the, the, the earliest records of dreams were this cache of them found and Ashurbanipal, who was, I forget, I forget exactly what century when he was six or five or something like that, BC, he had collected from earlier going back 2000 years or something like that. So someone who basically, you know, a, a very powerful person could do pretty much what they wanted. One of the things they wanted to do was hold on to these records of dreams going back for thousands of years. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I have to say, you have to be completely inured uh, to the idea of any mystery of your own being to think that, you know, your, your dreams are just kind of, you know, psychic waste matter, uh, you know, give, uh, given off uh, at, at, at different times. Not to say we know exactly what they are, you know, uh, uh, but um, th there's certainly there's so certainly something more than that. Well, and you find, of course, uh, in the Bible, Joseph and his, his dreams, the idea that dreams are precognitive, uh, it was sort of part and parcel of one of the reasons they you know, wanted to save these dreams. Well, this was the thing. It was the whole idea that there was some knowledge, some wisdom, some information, as we would say today, that could be imparted in the dream or was imparted in the dream that... Um, was it immediately available and not always immediately available to the dreamer? And hence, you know, uh, Joseph interpreting uh, Pharaoh's dream 
um, uh, and later, you know, up, up, up until today, you know, <laughs> when we go to our therapists or, 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 or dream seers to try and understand what they're about. And because they, they speak in a symbolic language, but as I try to show in the book, it's a symbolic language that's very much of the time and of, 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 of the dreamer. So, well, you, you want to say that all those kind of, you know, uh, as we say, um, off the rack, dream interpretation books that say, well, if you dream about a cat, it means this, dream about that. I mean, it may have meant whatever they say it means at a certain time in a certain culture, but it doesn't necessarily going to mean the same thing for you, you know, dreaming. Uh, But one of the things that does seem to be uh, a, a kind of characteristic of dreams that's carried through, through different cultures is that they, they tell jokes uh, they 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 plays on words and puns and and things of that sort um, uh, metaphor but also kind of you know uh, funny not in the sense of trying to entertain but it is it is a kind of way where they do sort of be able to communicate things uh, in in that way in the language and this goes back to the Egyptians um, uh, uh, and this was something that in many ways one of the things I point out in the book. What I discovered in, in in doing the reading is that the, some of the ways the Egyptians looked at dreams is some of the way Freud looked at them in the same way, and and Freud, you know, wrote famous famously about you know wit and, and humor and the unconscious and all that. You also point out that one of the most interesting forms of precognitive dreaming, I think uh, the term you used uh, or the term that's found in the literature is prodromal dreaming, when when people dream about their own uh, physical health. Yeah, this is something, again, practiced by the ancients. Um, your, your dreams could sort of foretell or show in advance um, changes in your health uh, in some way. And this would be, again, it's a kind of precognitive dream. You know, the, the, the doctor, <clears throat> the physician would be able to well, much like the therapist, where it's not, it's not maybe not so much your physical health, but your your psychological one. Oh, if you're good at it, you have these dreams, and they may tell in advance what's on its way. You know, they they cast their shadows before them. But in this sense, it is actually physical. It's about your physical condition, um, and the or you could even say that. Well, the ancients did believe that organs, individual organs, sort of dreamt. So your liver, might, your liver might have a dream and try to get something across to you or, you know, your kidney or whatever, that kind of thing. And they would be able to read that. And, um, and this was something that's, you know, it's documented, you know, throughout, um, throughout history. I mean, I, I kind of do a potted, you know, little history of that in there, uh, you know, a, a section or two about that. But this is one of the, you know, the most, uh, as we say it, um, commonly practiced approach to dreams um, in, in, in the early or a- ancient time. In fact, I would put it even more strongly, the most commonly practiced form of medicine. Hippocrates himself taught in a what was known in the ancient world as an Asclepion, a sleep temple. People came to the hospital and slept overnight and their dreams were recorded. Yeah, it was a whole whole idea of of going and incubating. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the whole notion of incubation goes back goes back to that to dreaming to um, you you go and you you go to the temple Epidaurus or uh, whoever it might have been. And you 
to you know you go through certain rituals of purification and fasting and a variety of other things that prepare you for this and then you have a dream or well you you sleep there hoping hoping to have a dream in which either you know you you're given some information about whatever it is that's troubling you or the dream itself is you know a relief from it now another aspect of of your book is the way that dreams can reach into uh, the past, sometimes the deep past as well as the future. Well, I, yeah, dreams and also our waking consciousness uh, can can do that. Because I mean, one of the things I try to do in the book is, um, I mean, it starts out as a I'm, I'm talking about my own experience with having these precognitive dreams over over many years and a variety of different examples of them, but then it opens. As you say, you know, it opens up into discussions of dreams in themselves and then time. Uh, so I I didn't quite say it exactly in the book, but what I had in mind was like there are these two mysteries that seem to be coming together in, in this precognitive you know, experience in dreams. So we have the mystery of dreams in the first place, which are strange whether they're precognitive or not. And then you have somehow this remarkable power of them to displace time to you know to sort of jump ahead a bit but also go into the past but I, I think in a general sense we have we this is one of the things i mean to say we kind of live in an information universe in a, in a way you know where this information is available to us in a variety of different forms i mean we all know about the information highway and, and the internet and that kind of thing but i mean more immediately in our own experience our own consciousness so in my dreams i'm somehow having information about the future when i shouldn't have it it hasn't happened yet but then in other sorts of experiences, you can go into what well, I call them kind of time slips in the book where, you know, uh, people have had, you know, recorded experience where they've gone back to the past in some way. And it's been a felt, you know, uh, not just they know it happened, they were there. And I mean, one of the ones I talk about, um, well, there's a historian, Arnold Toynbee, and his, his remarkable multi-volume study of history. It's just called that. But in one of the volumes, he talks about his inspiration for writing this, this, this enormous study of civilizations. And he talks about how once when he was in Greece, he was at the ruins of a city called Mistra, which was a famous city back in the you know, medieval ancient days and, uh, and so on and so on. But it had been overrun in the 19th century and it was had left as a ruin. But while he was there, he suddenly felt as if this massacre on the city was taking place. He was there. He was in the midst of it. He had somehow gone back into time like that. And he talks about other experiences. And there's one major one that he talks about when he's walking past the Victoria Station and all of history opened up for him. And it was like a parade going by him. And, you know, Toynbee was, he wasn't an occultist. He, he wasn't anybody into doing any of this weird kind of stuff. He was, he was a you know, very, you know, world famous historian and all that. So, what I try to do with the book is a kind of gradient. There's what happens in dreams, and then it crosses over into our, you know, waking state, and then our our, our consciousness, I would say, has an ability to reach out of the present moment, you know, into in, in, into other times and places. And so I try to kind of move, you know, into how 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 that can happen in our everyday waking consciousness as well. You report, for example, a dream you had, and of course you indicate there's no way you can empirically verify the validity of it, but at the emotional level, it felt very authentic to you in which you had an encounter with Rudolf Steiner. 
Yeah, I tell yes, to tell you the truth, Jeffrey, I mean, yeah, that that is one of the most remarkable dreams I've ever had. And I I, I only mention it in the book and um the actual journal I I go into detail about what what took place in the dream. But I had to say that I felt that and I actually Years ago, when I, I was visiting Colin Wilson, I, I talked about him with this, and he said, yeah, it probably was Steiner. <laughs> but I felt like I had really, Steiner came to me in this dream. And I, I and this was a time when I was reading a lot of Steiner, I, I, before I wrote my book, but this was when I was working at this bookshop in Los Angeles called the Bodhi Tree, which was famous in its day, as you know, the metaphysical bookshop. And I was reading a lot of Steiner and blah, blah, blah. And I had this remarkable dream where I felt he had come to me and he was talking to me about something. And it was like deeply, powerfully moving. And I, I, I don't know how else to express it. And uh, uh, But it was one of the most remarkable dreams I've ever had. And I have to say, I've had other dreams in which I'm, I'm sitting on a bench <laughs> in the Tuileries in Paris and I'm with somebody else and Gurdjieff and Uspensky are <laughs> walking toward us. And we're both sort of saying, oh, I'm, God, I'm looking forward to talking to those guys or something like that. So, I mean, the dreams are able to like... This is one of the remarkable things about dreams. They're, uh, uh, put aside the precognitive side of them, they're able to create this reality that's sometimes more real, you know, than than you know. We 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 we, we you know try to approach this with you know um, uh, uh, virtual reality and, and HD TV and all that. But I, I've had dreams in which I, I call it the crackle of reality. It's it's like I could reach out and kind of grip it, you know, <laughs> and see the creases. So, I mean, that is, what is that about? Why do we have brains? Forget about all the occult, mystical stuff. Why, why do we have a brain that can do something like that? And if it can, in sleep, create a reality that is just so remarkably strange, but at the same time real, what does it say about, you know, the world that we say to be, oh, this is the real one right now? Gary, in our previous interviews, I know you have paid a lot of attention to the hypnagogic state, that, that sort of twilight state, right in, in between waking and sleeping or waking and dreaming, and uh, the importance of that state for many of the great mystics about whom you've written. Yeah, I mean, the hypnagogic state seems to be one in which a um, variety of different paranormal parapsychological, mystical, esoteric sorts of experiences take place. And as you say, um, many of the greats people have written about, like Jung or Steiner or Swedenborg or Uspensky, um, were um, practice hypnagogues. And hypnagogic, it's a, it's a word is made of two you know, Greek words, hypnosis, sleep, and gogus is the, the guide that takes you into sleep. Um, some people split hairs over when you wake up, it's hypnopompic. So the pomp takes you up out of the sleep state. But basically, as you say, it's this inter intermediary, this liminal state when we all experience it twice a day and, um, you can learn how to stay in it and you can watch dreams take place. And it, it is a state in which precognitive events happen. I mean, Dunn himself records a few where he's, he's trying to, he's trying to test you know, uh, and he lies in bed and he puts himself into a drowsy kind of half sleep state and he visualizes his watch or some, something. I forget exactly what it was, but he visualizes something and then ah, he checks it and it, it was what he visualized and all that. So, I mean, these are things you can you, you, you can do and, and, and see what happens. Um, and but the hypnagogic is something that I mean, Jung, um, he developed a whole 
practice called active imagination uh, out of his own kind of natural uh, capacity for hypnagogia. And if you know his story, when he went through the breakup with Freud, um, and he plunged into this, you know, strange world of his unconscious and the archetypes and all that. He was having these waking dreams. And Swedenborg apparently was able to stay in that state for hours at an end. And, and it was in that state that he went to his journeys to heaven and hell and, and all of that sort of thing. So the power of uh, dreams can be accessed in different ways through journaling and through the practice of hypnagogia by the conscious mind. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's the thing. It's in a way it's always there too. Um, how should we say it? I mean, if you want to think of it sort of, I mean, we're, we're, we're like this all the time looking out that way and, you know, we, we never see the back of our heads, put it that way. And, the back of our, if you want to think of the back of our heads as the unconscious or the place where dreams come from, or all that activity is going on, that's sort of what we're trying to do, in a way. Uh, and I would say it's our it's our job, uh, in the sense that we're the conscious ego. We we can understand what we need to do. All that is it's there all the time. You know, it's 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 accessible all the time. You have to pay attention to it. And again, this. Is, this is one of the things I, I, I found is that, you know, I, I shouldn't even say it because it's more of a who uh, than an it or a what, you know, in some way. It's, um, it's hard to talk about it in the language we have. You know, we talk about the unconscious, uh, uh, um, but it, it, whatever it is that one engages with when you do this, it's intelligent. Um, and as I say in the book, again, one of the things I talk about in the book is my experiences with synchronicity as well. And, and with the I Ching. And um, just to say, I mean, the same sort of intelligence I found in dreams is the intelligence I found when, you know, working with the I Ching. When the, the, how a book written, I don't know how many um, centuries ago, and a random throw of a coins can communicate to me something that's actually intelligent and apropos, not just broadly, oh yeah, that applies to everything, but very much spot on, as they say here. I don't know. But it does, and it has enough times for me to recognize that something's at work there. And I would say it's the same kind of intelligence that's at work in dreams. There are a number of mysteries here. The mystery of dreams, the mystery of the, the very nature of intelligence, the mystery of time. Gary, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm thrilled to be able to bring you back once again to the New Thinking Aloud audience, and I'm very happy to let our viewers know that you and I plan a follow-up interview where we'll go into more depth about the nature of time itself, and I think that will also include the uh, more discussions about Jungian synchronicity and how it intersects with the nature of time. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I very much look forward to that. Well, thank you very much for being with me today, Gary. Once again, my pleasure, Jeffrey, and I look forward to following up. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.